think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 28 of The Boys in Short Pants, the 29th episode, back after a few weeks of us not being able to record for various scheduling concerns and whatnot. Uh, but we are now back. Uh, I'm Laura Carboneau. I'm Etienne Rainbow. And uh, today we're going to talk about so the stuff that's gone in the last couple of weeks that we haven't had a chance to talk about, uh, much of it quite fun. Uh, so it'll, it'll be good, our return to form, uh, yeah. finally. And yeah. hopefully we'll actually be able to do weekly episodes now. Uh, the leadership race is over, and that's kind of our schedules have... Return to human normality. Uh, it'll be all good. Uh, so we want to start with, uh, and of course, it's a little bit late on this, though not for me because I had Thanksgiving yesterday. Uh, but the liberals' uh, turkey talking points uh, that went out, and Etienne, you had a, you wanted to talk about this. So why don't why don't you introduce us? So this is almost becoming a yearly tradition for the liberals now, which is to send out these cartoonish talking points to their supporters on. Uh, Thanksgiving weekend, and the idea of which is to arm well-intentioned liberal supporters across Canada with the most fundamental of talking points to, you know, hammer their racist grandfather with, or their libertarian uncle is going to be shot down by these, like, two-line talking points. Yeah, or their, just, their NDP cousin, of course, he's, he's in there as well. Or the NDP cousin, and it's just... You love I it. You hate love it. it. Yeah, you love it a lot. <laughs> well, and I think it's important to note actually where this grew out of. Because in 2015 they did this, and that was the election year before they were in government. They did this because uh, Thanksgiving came in the middle of the election that year. And there was a lot of talk about how, like, ooh, you know, like, what would happen at the Thanksgiving table that weekend that would, you know, change the election. Uh, election coverage is, of course, very stupid. So this is why people talk about these things. And they made, uh, like, this two-page color handout with... These little bobblehead characters. Actually, very reminiscent of Rick and Morty animation. (laughs) Pretty close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can find them online somewhere. Something, something, Szechuan sauce. Ugh. Uh, He says, like, one of the examples here is, quote, middle class, middle class, middle class. He never talks about anything else. This is from the 2015 ones. But, Dad... This, this is my editorializing here. That's because our middle class does the real heavy lifting in our economy. They're the ones who need help, and that's why the liberals will cut their taxes. Trudeau is talking about what matters. Me, I want to talk more about pie. Let's, I'm sorry, let's talk about that. I mean, I am in favor of talking about pie. It's like... Yeah, you get the idea, I think. <laughs> but yeah, they, they had a batch this year that was actually, I think, you know, shockingly similar... In a, or really not shockingly similar in lots of ways. Uh, Susan Delacourt uh, had a piece on my politics about it, which you should read. Uh, Susan is good. Um, so they, they started off with, we want to make sure you're prepared for a healthy debate. So we're giving you the facts, the email says. Hot topics covered by, this is from Susan Delacourt's article, hot topics covered by the talking points included marijuana legalization, trade talks with the United States, asylum seekers at the border, and of course, proposed changes to how small businesses are taxed. We love doctors and every single Canadian who helps support the strong, universal public health care that our families rely on. Liberals are reminded in Turkey Talk 2017. Um, I apologize for doing the Justin Trudeau voice for that, but it's kind of reflexive. So what I, what I really hate about it is talking points are perhaps one of the most maligned things in sort of modern democracy and modern politics. And this is coming from a former Harper government communication staffer, <laughs> so bear that in mind. And... I agree, for what it's worth. I just want to make fun of you. And, like, generally, they're sort of, like... They're, they're like, talking points is used as, like, 
a, a dirty word. Like, yeah. Oh, you're just spitting out talking points. And so the liberals just boldly sending this to their supporters as if this is something that should be like coveted or shared broadly. It, it's sort of a dumbing down yeah. of the debate. Well, and you, you've all heard the expression of the party line, right? And this is, like, drawn from the, the Soviet system of, like, you were told what to think about various issues and, like, oh, whoops, I guess we accidentally did that ourselves. So, uh, yeah, it's good. So, I mean, it's one thing to use um, talking points in communications with politics, and they're obviously very useful, hence why they're so widely used. Yeah. But I, I think it sort of crosses a line uh, to be sending those broadly to hundreds of thousands of Canadians you know, to actually, say, this is what you should say and think. I have an interesting theory about this, and it relates to how the Liberals fundraise. Uh, I have a blog post out there that's ancient now. Uh, I might see if I can dig that up later to put in the show notes or something. But uh, it talked about how, how I, I think each party does fundraising. The Liberals, or so the Conservatives go for the, like, angry live wire lizard brain to <laughs> hit at, like, what people are mad about and just rely on anger as the front of it. and like I think we can like I think that's there's a lot of truth to that right I think you can disagree with me on certain aspects of it but when you look at like conservative strategy it's about getting people mad about things whether it's taxes refugees Omar Cotter whatever right that's how you get money out of people is you make them mad about things um, the the NDP does this like really like anodyne thing doesn't really work really well that's basically like oh we should we should be mad about this and yeah the injustice and like it's kind of like weak need and doesn't work as well. But what the liberals do is they sort of make you feel like an insider. And them sending out these talking points is them saying you're part of the club and like here's here's your line from from the, the club. Like here's you're on the inside. And it's the same thing they do when they ask you what you think the next t-shirt design should be or you know that kind of thing. Like that's what the liberals trade on. It's clubbiness and it's kind of what they've always traded on except that historically they've done it at a very clubby level with you know, the sort of political and economic elites of the country where they would historically get donations from. Yes. Uh, but now that they've had to broaden the pool, they've just extended that same clubby mentality to sort of the broader Canadian population. And that's how I think, like, that's a big key component of how their brand interacts with people. So there you go. You too can have a trip to the Agricons Island. Exactly, with, yeah. With we can, we're all billionaires. Trudeau. We're all billionaires. Middle class billionaires. No, and I, I think uh, to a certain extent that's true. When you look at... Uh, especially the fundraising emails over the election and post-election. Fascinating reading, folks. You really it, should give it a look sometime. It was always interesting to see what sort of the more unique ones. There are, there are always sort of the regular fundraising emails that just are pitches for money from various cabinet ministers. Yeah. Like or, you get the ones from like Paul Klander at 3 in the morning. I'm so mad I can't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> the goddamn libs. <laughs> there, there are certainly those, but... I think what's more interesting to look at is the ones that break that mold. Mm -hmm. uh, the Liberals had one where... It was a, your donation would enter you into a contest for like Justin Trudeau's sketch on a napkin yeah. of the Human Rights Museum or something oh like that. God. Like, but it's that kind of stuff, right? I, like that's what I mean. It's like there's really these philosophies at work with how these sort of like tribes interact with their members. It's like you know you you feel like part of the inner circle, or you feel mad at the other people, or for the NDP, it's sort of an ineffective blend of the two. I think the closest the Conservatives had to that was some sort of model plane. I can vaguely remember being up. I don't remember this. Yeah, because you're not on the Conservative fundraising. Emails. That is a good point. <laughs> but I think it was some sort of model plane. I don't really remember the backstory to this plane. Um, but frankly, having received emails from all three parties. Um, the liberals are much more uh, 
reliant or willing to use this model of auctioning off weird, quirky things. Sort of like a kind of cash for sort of (laughs) access kind of situation, you could say. Cash for items. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is that it is symbolically access, right? If you think about it. Like, ooh, you get to be... The, the great leader will think about you. I suppose yeah. so. Anyway, that's just... I'm just making fun of them at this point. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about with the turkey talk? No, I think that... Uh, I think we, we actually got a pretty decent discussion out of that. That rounds it down. The, the last thing I would say about it, I would be particularly looking at the 2015 uh, PDF, two-page PDF of it. It's really geared, and even the language they use, is geared at a young audience. It's really geared at the, like, high school, or not high school, because high schoolers can't vote, uh, but university level. Mm-hmm. Um, it has these quirky graphics. It's sort of... Like I said, it looks like... it actually Condescending like towards grandpa. Like, it's clearly yeah. not for grandpa. Um, it's no. more for, you know, the young liberals group. It's definitely someone aged, like, 18 to 35. Or young, well, I'd I'd say Even eighteen younger. to twenty five, but yeah, yeah, very very young target with this. Yeah, thirty five year olds are millennials, man. Come on, barely. I think anyway. Yeah. I, I actually don't remember. I don't really care. I think uh, they are, but barely. Yeah. So mo- moving on. Um. So I think the next item we wanted to talk about was uh, CRA, and I think we should we should frame this discussion because in the next couple items in in a broader thing because it's basically been. A very rocky couple of weeks for the broader finance portfolio. Yes. And, um, I mean, yes. not only a couple of weeks, ever since Bill Morneau announced uh, the 75 day consultation period, which wrapped up on small business tax changes, on small business tax changes three different changes, um, and sort of the 68 or whatever it is page discussion paper um, that conclude or that where cons- consultations concluded on October 2nd, I want to say. Um, the Liberals have absolutely been hammered on this. Um, there have been a couple voices on the other side, but I could show you a list of headlines where 95% of the headlines are incredibly opposed to these changes and very active and very uh, engaged. Yeah. And so in the constituencies impacted, there's broad small business owners, there have been lawyers, there have been doctors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what you've had is you've had the liberal government basically, it, it's to, yet to be seen, uh, we'll perhaps see this next week, um, how much they back down on these changes. But nonetheless, it has been a communications nightmare. Um, the liberals went into it with a framing of this is about tax fairness, which implied that everyone who was taking advantage of these long-standing practices and tax planning were cheats. And I mean, I and I actually I would disagree with that because I am a more sympathetic to their framing is that they were taking advantage of the tax code as it existed, which was unfair. I don't think it necessarily makes of those people cheats. I think like they were not stupid to take advantage of existing tax advantages. It's just that they should close the loophole. So um, I think what comes from that is to say if the, if these people were using unfair tax advantages, yeah, then they are quote unquote bad people. It wasn't fair of them to do this. This was a bad thing for them to do. I mean, like, like it, it becomes rhetorically to say. I can see how it's very easy for the conservatives to judo flip it in that direction. It's not only conservative; <laughs> it's a lot of the small business owners yeah. who are just were literally just pissed by the framing. Yeah, of we're being this. told that like they were bad people. I, I yeah. can get that. I can get. That. I, I think like policies aside, we yeah. we're we're not here to dispute. No, and it was very like a very like we have to agree the rollout was like very 
high-handed, condescending, uh, and like. So it was it was absolutely mangled. Yeah. Um. There was a pivot midway through to try and talk about dead money, which was a seemed to be ad hoc and improvised. I mean, it's like not dumb, but like well, no, it it, it is from a communications perspective, but from a policy perspective, I get it. No, it's not. It's not either. But you're right. Even then, the dead money comments is for enormous corporate cash hoards, not small businesses. Yes, you are are correct. It it never had anything to do with passive investments in small business. Yeah. Um. Though some people would say gray money is a is a different matter, but gray capital. Actually, the libertarians coined that one, so don't get mad at me. One sec. To not get into this, what this I guess this all just sets the background. So the, the background here, uh, all of that summed up, is to say the finance portfolio, specifically Bill Morneau, yeah, has been very very heavily on it's the been defensive. A bad, summer. bad summer. There was a great televised uh, town hall in Oakville, Ontario where Morneau and Karina Gould and I think there was one other minister there just got absolutely skewered at, I think it was a Unifor-led uh, town hall, actually. Interesting. I didn't hear about this. And it was broadcast basically live everywhere, and it was just people screaming at Bill Morneau for two hours. Like, a, a few people were nice and were like, we respect that you came here, but here's why you're killing our country. <laughs> like, it was absolutely ruthless. So... In the context of all of this going on, the CRA uh, seemingly quietly changed what's called a folio, uh, which is basically guidance for small business owners about how tax changes or about how taxes should be carried out. And one of the changes in uh, the most recent folio included a change to the description of taxable benefits, uh, which is to say my very first job uh, was at McDonald's. I did not know that. Yeah, my very first job was at McDonald's. I uh, was in charge of cooking the burgers. Oh. There is no burger flipping at McDonald's, contrary to uh, no, com- do they not flip them? common do belief. They do? No, you press two buttons, and uh, this, fucking automation, man. this like press comes down onto the top and the bottom oh, of the burger. Oh, I see. So you don't actually need to flip them. And so the burgers that you use for McDoubles, say, cook in 30 from frozen in 35 seconds. Holy shit. And then you scrape off the grill, you scoop them all up, and you plunk them in the warmer. Now you guys know. We're like that's, how it's made. That's <laughs> But podcasty and about McDonald's. Um, so at, as an employee at McDonald's, I would get um, a free sort of, it was like a tier two meal. So I couldn't get the wow, double Big generous. Mac. Wow, that's generous. I couldn't get the double Big Mac meal, but I could get the Big Mac meal. I could get the quarter pounder with cheese, but not the double quarter pounder with cheese. Damn, it's full you guys. Um, six nuggets, not ten nuggets. Like thing, things like but that. But did you get the Szechuan sauce? <laughs> no Szechuan, Szechuan sauce. Um, and so all of this is to say is that I was getting a benefit from my employer that had a taxable value. Yeah, like $6. Of $6. <laughs> you work there five days a week. That's $35. Yeah. And, they tax um, you yeah. and then times that by 52 weeks a year, that amounts to, you know, a couple hundred dollars. Yeah. And so the implication from all of this was that the, CR wanted to ta- the CRA wanted to tax these sort of meager benefits. Yes. And I'm sure somewhere there's people benefiting well, from these, okay, getting yeah. like the $1 Lamborghini. Yeah, the $1 year company or, car. Well, even it's not a Lamborghini, it's like a car, which like, cars are expensive. Sure. Uh, and like getting a company car is like actually a pretty big benefit. Uh, the way they rolled this out is that those people didn't get mentioned until, once again, way too late. <gasps> Um, so wait, 
Let's talk about the rollout. Okay. But, yes, because that's so, the worst part. Yeah. So, so Honestly, now, yeah. Okay. now we start at the stage. He, he has this whole, like... Uh, got the timeline. Yeah, whole timeline. You know, the uh, Charlie from It's Always Sunny looking at the corkboard thing. It's kind of set up behind us. Uh, it's pretty impressive. Glenn Beck also. I don't know if yeah. that's a more relevant touchstone for a conservative friend here. But. Um, so, actually, I, I haven't been able to find the date of when the actual CRA tax folio got rolled out. Um, but I saw one reference to it being um, some of these changes were effectively posted or telegraphed online a few months in advance. And so uh, on September 27th, Carl Lidler of the Canadian Retail Council was presenting in front of the Finance Committee uh, on pre-budgetary submissions, which is basically where people go to yeah. finance and say, here's what we want money for. Yeah. And actually, if you're in the GR industry, especially on the like industry association side, this is like your big event of the year. Ish. I don't Ish. know that anyone is too optimistic about what gets accomplished Certainly through Certainly on the these, nonprofit side, but it is very big. It, it's an opportunity to sit in front of a room full of... Finance officials, MPs. Finance officials, MPs, and get your get your ask put on the record, and you know ultimately your ask, your ask. Okay, yeah, just to clarify, not your ass. You don't your, want your ass on no, the record. No, your ask put on the record, and uh, the the other thing that is less obvious is that you are one of hundreds of people that do this. Yes, and so doing it well is very very tricky, and yeah. so that you are remembered as distinct. Uh, but Carl Lidler goes and he uses his time or a, a fair amount of his time to talk about this proposed CRA or this CRA tax folio on the website. And upon his closing remarks, uh, Liberal ML or MP Wayne Easter, who's also chair of the Finance Committee. And also the voice of our uh, opening sequence. Yes, yeah, so if you ever wondered whose theme song or who whose voice we made into our theme song, it is in fact Wayne Easter's, uh, said something along the lines of, I can't help but shake my head at this one. And then he goes on a little later to, to again sort of reiterate this and be like, oh, this is this is ridiculous. Like, we'll, we'll look into this. And because in, to reiterate, it is ridiculous. Like, it, in most cases, like, it is... In total overreach. In the reporting of this, uh, so this, keep in mind, was September 27th. Uh, Two-ish weeks later, there's a story in the Globe and Mail that basically lays this out. And this is when everything catches fire. Um, because this is happening in the context of the broader finance debate. So now not only are we taxing or screwing over all these that... Uh, w without arguing the policy implications, this is apparent. This is what the narrative is. Not only are the liberals screwing over um, small business owners, they're also going to start taxing petty things from their employees. Yeah. So the optics of this are absolutely horrible. So on October 10th, Marco Mendicino uh, goes to, who's one of the parliamentary secretaries of liberals, goes on power and politics to defend these changes. And at this point, it's pretty clear that this blindsided the liberals. Yeah. Reading sort of the order of events here, it seems very likely that this was a change in, uh, done and implemented by bureaucrats without ever yeah. going to the minister's office. That said, like, Michelle Rempel, among others, is saying that it would have required a ministerial signature. I actually don't know if that's the case or not. I uh, you might know better than I do. I suspect it might not have. Um, I don't. I, I mean, I, I feel like it, I'd have a hard time convincing a minister to sign off on this. I think the final word on this will ultimately come out through access to information. Almost certainly. Um, because. So I'd be prepared to wait 60 to 90 days, folks. <laughs> whilst um, 
you might not be able to access information. Any document where the minister signed off on this directly is would fall under the exemption for advice of ministers. You might be able to ATIP the communications response yep. and to see what officials were saying about this and how they interacted with their minister's office in the uh, sort of issues management response to this. Um, so... Following Marco Mendicino's uh, appearance on Power and Politics, this might have been slightly before or slightly uh, after, Minister of CRA, um, Diane Le Boutillier, yep, that's right. Le Boutillier, um, put out a statement that, to me, looked like it had been written by the department and put out without any edits. Oof. It was very defensive of the department, and it was very defensive of the tax changes. So seemingly at this point, no one had made the call that we are going to reverse course on this yeah. until perhaps literally hours later. Also, but just for, for listeners too, the reason we're folding this into discussion of finance is because CRA is traditionally someone who's a junior minister to the finance minister. Yes. Uh, because I think CRA is its own agency, uh, but it is sort of very connected to finance. Yeah, every traditionally they just carry out yeah. the changes that are made yeah. at finance. But just to yeah, just to give context to why we're talking about this in the context of the finance changes. Um, so her original statement, I don't have it in front of me, but it was it was very milk toast. And then something like six hours later, um, her statement got heavily heavily amended. Um, to this document was not approved by the minister and we are deeply disappointed that the agency posted something that has been misinterpreted like this and so it's literally throwing the bureaucrats under the bus yeah that's funny yeah and so what's what's sort of interesting and and then i guess the the final saga of this came uh, a day later on october 12th where prime minister justin trudeau tweets about it reiterating uh, Diane, Minister Leboutier's point. Um, a couple things I would make, here, or a couple things I'd point out here. One was how much lag time there was between the initial pointing it out at the Finance Committee and to Wayne Easter by the Retail Council of Canada, who's been quoted as saying, like, we tried to contact the department to express our, <laughs> our interest in these changes. And this clearly, I mean, if it did make it up to the minister's level, someone screwed up big time because they didn't quash this. Mm -hmm. They had almost two weeks uh, from finance committee, not to mention many weeks before that from when the actual folio went out, and that no one there saw and flagged this issue and reversed course on this Yeah, until it was 24 to 48 hours after it was in the Globe and Mail and all across Oof. Canada and all across messages board, so, message boards, and it just lit up media. Yeah. Did you read, uh, Paul, we should have discussed this before we started recording, but did, did, did you read Paul Wells' piece that he had in McLean's the other day? Yes. It was very good. It was about sort of the liberals' relationship with money uh, and with capital, and I think it's it's well worth your time. Uh, Paul Wells um, is actually, like, and this is the view of someone who, you know, typically thinks most media is, is pretty bad in this country. Uh, Paul Wells is a pretty astute political observer, and I think his sort of historical perspective on how past prime ministers and parties have sort of dealt with the issue of, of capital and big money in politics is, is really interesting, and I highly recommend you read it. I'll put it in the, the description because it's super good. Uh, but I think there's a lot there to glean about, like, the Trudeau liberals, like, just didn't see this coming because it, like, was not on the radar. And I think it's very telling that it's not on the radar. So one of the the last things I'll uh, point out about this 
is, yeah, it was on the radar. The issues management manager at CRA. CRA is not one of the busier issues management portfolios. Which you'd think it would be, in a sense. But I guess it doesn't change often. Yeah, there's there's not a lot of change. Everyone sort of passively hates the CRA. Every now and again, there's something about charities being decertified uh, yeah, and, they, and I that get sort of thing. About that. But that's about as heated as it ever gets at the CRA. Yeah. Um, which is to say that perhaps the guy was a little out of practice. Um, <laughs> an, an issues ma- manager fundamentally is not is like most of the threats to their sort of their position, their portfolio, their minister are often internal. Yeah, that you your job is to review everything coming out of your department. Yeah, like, we cannot say this, we will be strung up and killed. Like, to, yeah, to see what missteps are coming out of your department, yeah. as much as the things you can't control for that are coming from the so outside, like which the, is someone complaining in some newspaper somewhere, and like then the, you have to respond nice to that. of government, really. Sure. Sort of the shield that guards the realms of, of government. I, I guess so. Sort of, you know. Um, the wild links but, is the golden But in that realm. case, it would be external as opposed to internal. Where yeah. this was an internal issue, this is like the bread and butter of what any issues manager should be able to respond to effectively. Yeah. And in this case, an effective response would have been that I, I would okay. Perhaps you're not reading the folios online, but when uh, they went to committee, and Wayne Easter said, "I shake my head at this one," or the retail council tried to contact the department or your office. Those lines of communications with your stakeholders were open. You heard about it. You asked your bureaucrats and said, what the hell's going on here? Why have you done this change? We're reversing this. This is a bad idea. Yeah. And that didn't happen until 48 to 72 hours later. And then you've had a pretty unprecedented tweet by the prime minister (laughs) weighing in on like a fairly routine issues management topic. But it's because of the broader context around... Uh, the changes at finance sort of galvanizing the whole conversation right yeah. now. Yeah. Do you have the tweet? No, you don't. But he said, let, uh, me, let me be blunt. Uh, yeah. We are not changing uh, the tax. The last thing I would point out about the issues management response, and I, I found sort of interesting, and one thing to look for when you're reading articles that seem like they're from an issues management perspective, where the minister or the minister's office is responding is, who's quoted uh, from that office? One of the rules of thumb we operated on is when you're breaking bad news or you're being defensive, typically you want uh, to be quoted as the minister's spokesperson. That That's the distinction. Sometimes you'll see the minister quoted. Sometimes you'll see the spokesperson news, quoted. Minister. Yeah, you don't, you don't want to, the minister's spokesperson saying, and we've invested $600 million in Bombardier, although I would consider that bad that news. That was also bad news, yes. Yeah. I was just going to say that, yeah. <laughs> um, and in this case, the I believe uh, the initial milk toast defense of the bureaucrats came from Minister Labutsi. Oh no! Ah, oh, geez, that's really had, bad. Had her quoted, as opposed to the minister spokesperson. The minister spokesperson says X, which sort of introduces a layer of separation, and so the unhappy things that you're now going to reverse are never attached yeah. to her name, can never be quoted to her. Yeah. She never has to defend those comments because, no, it was my spokesperson who said that. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I mean, it, you it, could, it seems, yes. <laughs> the no. metaphysics of someone's spokesperson speaking for that person aside. Yes, yes. but there is, for, for better or for worse, there's certain there's a certain level of separation there Yeah, that's best to keep, whether you need to throw 
a member of your staff under the bus later or if it's just for the optics of not being yeah. directly associated yeah. with that yeah quote. that's really bad that's like that's like harjeet's john issues management guy level bad so, so this one is a reference we've talked about this no we haven't oh we haven't we never okay have. well i'll let chan do this thing because it's one of his favorites um so th- this was in reference to the architect of the architect <laughs> operation medusa uh so God, when, that sounds so like when when this whole story was blowing up six months ago um, there was an article that featured the spokes. So one of, one of the questions that had arisen was, was this in his speech or not? Yeah. Often this type of speech is written by the civil service. It's handed up to the minister's office. They rewrite it, add a little more partisan flavor to it. It goes to the minister. The minister makes the final edits and uh, then presents it how, how he will. Um, check against delivery, of course. Indeed. Um, so what happened is that people began asking, so where did this phrasing come in? Who put the edits? What stage along the process? Oh, and there was a great quote in which the minister's press secretary said, it was him. It's all him, yeah. It, it was, was his idea. This is not a question you wanted to answer, and it just helped fuel the fire. Well, yeah, and because it was, like, I, honestly, you could have avoided almost 90%, but like it's some enthusiastic junior communications staffer just said architect instead of whatever. And like we can talk about how that would have flown or not, but like just for the the issues management guy to come out and say, yeah, actually that was the minister. He did that himself personally. It's like he was the architect of his own speech. You could say, yeah, uh, was like you just don't answer dumb, the question. Very dumb. You don't answer the question. <laughs> very very stupid. It was effectively malpractice. It was throwing yeah. your own minister under the bus. Yeah. And like I know some uh, communication staffers who worked in the Harper government were like, why on earth would you do that? Like, did PMO put you up to this? Like, what is going on here? It was it was just so out of the ordinary. Yeah, say what you will about Harper's message discipline. At least it was discipline. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, moving on um, uh, from yeah, that one. to a great story that broke uh, this last week. So, yeah, I mean, I guess the theme of... Uh, finance, but the, troubles. The podcast here is finance. Yeah. Um, the next one is, of course, the $200,000 budget cover. Um... Yeah, so you the wanna... first question, I guess, for anyone is Have you ever seen the budget? Do you know what the budget looks like outside of like a couple thousand people in Ottawa? Does anyone like... actually oh, see the budget? Okay, okay. I was going to say, if, if I count, I remember vaguely that it was like happy people with like sketches like little sketches yeah it had like light them. light brushing oh i don't know what you'd call it but yeah like no, light it's brushing funny because people were making fun of it because the sort of theme of the budget was that it was like money will be coming later for things and it was like people holding like drawings of computers <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it was like that was kind of funny on its own uh or, like drawings of infrastructure yeah, it was all like, imaginary yeah that was kind of funny um but yes turns out that that actually cost the government um uh, you know like by government standards not a lot of money but by Ordinary Any people standards, a fair person. chunk of change, two hundred thousand dollars on um, on uh, designing the budget cover. They did this in conjunction with an advertising firm. It was interesting to me that it was finance officials doing this and not someone in the minister's office. Well, I guess graphic design is at the budgetary level or the department level. So because no. this was, this came out through ATIP. It came out through ATIP uh, by a firm called Blacklocks, which is effectively reporters who just ATIP things, and yes. no one outside of Ottawa has any reason to know of Blacklocks. Yes, because the subscriptions are horrifically expensive. Also. Yeah, and basically their model is to put up a paywall, 
um, ATIP a bunch of things, write up stories about the ATIPs, and then you have to, if you're the people in X department, yeah. who's, the headline reads like, scandal at yeah. fisheries and oceans. Well, and also, it's like, often the subscribers to these will be institutional, right? Like, as you say, it's departments or lobby firms or, you know, whatever. Like, in the Hill Times, like, has a similar thing where a little less ridiculous because they're... They don't paywall. operate on the same model. No, well, I mean, like, a lot of it's paywall, then it's a fairly pricey subscription yeah because it's it's i mean it's small subscriber based yeah, it for a small industry yeah but that's the thing here too is it's sort of like the lobby monitor is actually a better example uh where it's stuff where it's like you're an industry group or like a company a you know government relations firm what have you you subscribe to these things kind of en masse and then you have access to them uh because typically they do very in-depth reporting uh, as the chance says going through a tips is actually like a huge pain in the ass to someone who has to do a lot of it over the summer. Uh, like, for the instance, this last week we got, I think, 3,100 pages back from the Justice Department in my office, which is a lot of pages. Um, so it takes time to go through things and, you know, actually find. Because often the did nugget... You get, did you get the paper or the CD? The CD. Mm-hmm. Uh, and often the nugget, you know, is somewhere deep in the middle, and it's just, you, you have to actually go through and scrutinize everything. So it really is a shit ton of research work that's fairly intensive. Uh, and often they're presented like out of order, out of chronology. So hat, like honestly, like hat tip to people who can get good information out of ATIPS is really like the skill of being an investigative Hill reporter or even an opposition staffer, I think, is being able to research that kind of stuff well. Yeah, absolutely. And so all this to say is Blacklock's ATIPS, um, the story around the budget, uh, the budget as a document gets the costing for the actual cover photo comes out to around $200,000. They also get a bunch of pages of emails of the discussions between PMO, PCO, what they're looking for in this, because the budget is first and foremost a communications document. Yep. Um, you'll, you'll hear tons of people say this. It's the most trite observation in Ottawa, I think. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not it by no means unique to myself. The, so the cover of the budget, people are like, oh, what, what color is the budget? What, what pictures are featured on it? What are the ethnicities of the people? <laughs> well, credit to the Herbert Conservatives. Like, how diverse always is just, the like, photos? Blue covers. And so this is what you see in the emails is them talking about the diversity of the people in the photos and the firm asking about, like, which, do, uh, which ethnic background specifically are you looking for in these photos? Like, it, it's very blunt. Um, because this is first and foremost <laughs> a communications on, put tool. Put me on Team Hipster. This was uh, with regards to whether like a six-year-old should have glasses or not. That was pretty good. <laughs> but yeah, so it, it just like yeah, like I think people do have a notion of the Trudeau government as image obsessed, and this doesn't help. Not in the slightest. I think the the test here is against the average person. What do you think a document that no one has ever seen should cost and the answer is never going to be two hundred thousand dollars yeah especially because yeah like as a chan said um, the budget covers like people get the budget like paper copies in lockup or like they yeah. get submitted or they you know they go out to mp's offices that kind of stuff but like most people are never going to see a fiscal copy of the budget and if they're looking at the pdf which is once again a vanishingly small amount of people outside of ottawa they are scrolling right past the budget into yes. what the cover into whatever they want to find um, let me be proactively defensive here, uh, based on what a lot of the conversation on Twitter is from liberal partisans. Um, who this is say, normal and good. <laughs> <laughs> 
the def- they tr- they don't defend the use of two hundred thousand dollars, but they point instead to conservative failures. Uh, of course, yeah, they did it worse. Um, yeah. which which is say the like classic conservative spent you know X million dollars advertising their budgets. Yeah, which they did. Yeah. Which which they absolutely did, and there's certainly a conversation to be held around what the proper way to advertise government spending is, what the yeah. proper way to advertise new programs and where sort of the cost benefit is Ooh. in terms of advertising yeah. programs, in terms of getting buy-in, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And I've mentioned this about the Ontario government. Sorry to sidetrack you here, but there, for instance, there was like a program for an energy rebate they had where they spent, I think, like 90% of the budget on advertising the program, which is not a good ratio. No. Carry on. Yes, this was uh, a year ago or so. Um, all of that is to say that I would say is a different conversation. Um, sure, you can point to the sins of anyone else in government, but it's by no means an excuse. No. And when you have a government, and likely the downfall of this government as well as any other liberal government, is going to be the presumption that is out of touch with everyday Canadians. Yep. And so that's what you're seeing in the finance narrative more broadly. I mean, it's really the downfall of every government. I think what people uh, got no. about the Harper government at the end of the day was that it was out of touch with anybody but its most rabid base. So I would change that statement to perhaps something more along the lines of they were too mean. Which I, I think, yeah. I mean, I, I, see that as I would say different. that is pretty similar. I but. see that as different to say it's sort of a tone-based thing as opposed to the way liberal governments fall and ultimately the direction this one is going is to say, we're talking about the middle class, but our finance minister is hiding French villas. Oh, that's in, the next thing. Oh. <laughs> yeah, is hiding Good segue. French villas um, yeah. from his well, ethics disclosures. Already, and he's already like a multi-millionaire guy, f- you know, from an inherited firm. Um, so, it, you know, th- honestly, I never really understood the optics of Bill Morneau as finance minister for the middle class. Uh, and Scott Bryson, for that matter, as treasury board secretary. We should actually talk about treasury board sometime. So, if you look into it... Because um, they're the two Tories. <laughs> like, come on. In, in the conversation... Um, in, in the reporting around Gerald Butts and his conversations with Steve Bannon, apparently... <laughs> yeah. He should have had a conversation with Sebastian Gorka because that would have been <laughs> yeah. even funnier. Awkward, Mr. Butts! <laughs> awkward friends. However, um, the way their conversation has flowed and one of the reasons why um, they were friends is because, although they're on opposite... Or not necessarily friends, but perhaps... Acquaintances. Use, acquaintances or <laughs> useful colleagues. Yes. Is... Uh, that Butts really liked the dynamic of having rich people, i.e. Trudeau and Morneau. And Trump. Putting words in his mouth there. Well, no, no, not Trump, because they're doing different things. But having these people do the tax uh, increases on the upper class. And so having a member of that constituency go after that constituency and say, you need to pay more, was was the optic and the narrative that they wanted. But instead of that, they've done, you know, the upper tax bracket. Yeah. And then the other changes they're now doing are getting spun against them and saying, now we have more no the wealthy guy. And this is this is what the conservative messaging has been yeah. lately. You have the wealthy guy raising taxes on small business. Instead of the narrative that they wanted here, wow. which was you have the wealthy guy taking it after more wealthy people who are abusing yes. the tax code. Yeah. So you can really see where Morneau fit into that. 
um, which he's less and less. And the questions that the conservatives were shooting back at them were, why did why, or and the NDP particularly is why aren't you going after stock option? Yeah, which they promised stock they would, option. actually in the last election. Yeah. yeah, and so in tax havens. And so and that's that's how they push back. Why are you beginning? with the fruit that impacts small businesses and not yeah. the fruit that impacts your CEO. Yeah, which is, I think is a fair question, frankly. And this is the thing, like, if you're relying on class traders, right, uh, so to speak, to go after the big fish, like, why not just not? Like, just get people who have no big financial stakes to actually go after the changes that need to happen. Like, it's not as nice of a narrative. I think it actually is a better one that you don't need rich people to solve all your problems for you if you're middle class or working class. But, you know, whatever. I guess I'm not a liberal because I don't understand this notion that you have to have a savior for everything. But, all right, whatever. I guess that sort of takes us into the conversation. So we've mentioned the French Villa thing. Um, Morneau is Which, having... Which, to specify, yeah, you should want to describe what that was. Uh, so, apparently the CBC, for God knows what reason, um, queried businesses in France or something along these lines. I don't have the specifics in front of me. And essentially discovered that Morneau has a corporation, a registered business... Um, that holds property in France. Yes. Uh, and this was not, but not disclosed. Like it's like a nice house that he goes to with his wife sometimes. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's Airbnb on the weekends. Uh, <laughs> I, I, <don't> really, <laughs> I have a hard time seeing that, to be honest. <laughs> I don't really know. Then again, that would be the most liberal thing ever, <laughs> come to think of it. <laughs> so like, maybe. The gig economy. Yeah. Um, but all this is to, to say <laughs> that Morneau failed to declare the existence of this corporation on his ethical filings or his conflict of interest filings, which when you become a minister, uh, I don't know if MPs do it, um, but a designated public office holder, such as I was, you have to go through all your ethical conflicts and declare all your investments and de-invest yourself from any stocks, bonds, et cetera, et cetera, where you could reasonably seem to be having a conflict. Yeah. A lot of staffers don't hold any investments because Indeed, it gets tricky. Also, because most of us are poor. Well, there's there's the poverty aspect. Yeah. But I the, mean, 1% of people own stocks globally. The, like, it's the higher um, the higher up staffers, i.e. Yeah. the chiefs of staff oh, yeah, and sure, stuff like that. Sure. Um, I thought you meant like us, and I was like, eh, well, you no. know, there's a reason I don't own stocks. <laughs> and when people become staffers, this is something that they have to weigh, is what they're going to need to yeah. divest themselves from or put in a blind trust, et cetera, et cetera. Public et cetera. service is like not exactly like, unless you're like, you know, being outright criminal, not a place where you go to make money. So wait, to sum this up, uh, CBC investigates, starts asking more now about this undeclared um, corporation that's not in his filings. He, he then submits a filing to the conflict <laughs> of commissioner saying, you, whoops, forgot about this one. I, I love it when I forget about my French villa. And it does happen, you know. It sort of, again, blows up. Um, perhaps timed with this, perhaps not timed. I, I tend to think uh, there is a uh, basically an emergency meeting at 8 a.m. in Ottawa tomorrow. So Monday. Was, oh, yeah, because I have to be back Sunday night. Yeah, yeah typically, typically MPs fly in on late Monday. The house opens at 11. Only the people who physically need to be there, which is about a dozen or so, yeah. um, are ever there early that day. Most people arrive by noon and or one-ish, just in time for question period. Um, so there's sort of this word went around last week that all MPs are expected to be in Ottawa for first thing Monday morning, so everyone has to fly on Sunday. 
So clearly something's happening. Um, the timing with the French Villa story made a lot of people wonder if it was French Villa related. It seems like it's going to be more tax change. Yeah, I think tax changes related. Tax changes to some degree. Um, the extent to which they'll walk it back, I guess we'll see by Tuesday probably. Well, we'll know by the time this episode is out, I guess. In all likelihood. Yes. I just go see Blade Runner later, man. Come on, <laughs> break. I'm not getting this out today. <laughs> okay, so so perhaps we'll already be back. We'll we'll see how they walk it back. You guys can make fun of um, us or praise us for our foreknowledge, depending on how it goes. But all of this is to say, like what you've seen from all virtually all the stories we've discussed here today is this makes for Bill Moore knows very bad. No, don't do it. No. I don't even know how the rest of this the, goes. No, don't do it. Just let's avoid the cliche. Very bad, not very good month. I mean, sure. Close enough. I. But yeah, it's safe to say he's out of Very bad, no good, Ugh, what, just, whatever it is. so bad. Let's just not go there. Uh, and also, actually, there's, a, there's another cabinet minister who's been having trouble uh, in the last couple of weeks that we want to just touch on very briefly because like this is his own world, but uh, Melanie Jolie, who's the heritage minister... Uh, had a absolutely disastrous appearance on Tout le monde Pal in Quebec. It's a Quebec talk show uh, a couple weeks ago. So wait, you're you're glossing. Am I skipping over things? Well, you're glossing over Tout le monde Pal, which okay, let it's you're... a Quebec TV talk show that almost everyone in Quebec watches or like hears about. Like it is it is omnipresent in the same way that like Game of Thrones is omnipresent in Anglophone culture. Which I think to anyone outside of Quebec is sort of weird. Yes. Because it's sort of like a quasi-political, like cultural talk show that yeah. like is everywhere well, in Quebec yeah, is well, very well known. Yeah. Jack Jack Layden's Orange Wave basically was cemented by his appearance on Tumana Pal. That certainly helps. Politicians when they go on, it's a huge risk. Um, because everyone in Quebec will at least hear about it. They can eviscerate you, or yes. they can be best friends. And they're with actually you. pretty good interviewers. It's not like Jimmy Fallon like ruffling Trump's hair. Like they'll actually be like very specific on like they're good political interviewers as well as being good cultural and like fun interviewers. Uh, so good on them, frankly. Like they are actually very good at their jobs. But Melanie Jolie had a what was perceived to be a completely disastrous interview with them a couple weeks ago on the sort of treaty with Netflix. Um, uh, which we will, uh, me and Chan had to talk about this. We can we can talk about it later. Um, but yeah, just to I just wanted to bring this up just to say that if you're gonna get rid of one minister, you may as well get rid of two at the same time if two are underperforming. Especially, and this would actually be the first really like high level ministers getting dropped from cabinet or demoted if that were to happen. Yeah. So in this, I'm gonna reference the Don Martin piece that I posted on our Twitter page, uh, which is that there's. Uh, multiple people looking at Morneau and sort of these missteps and wondering how it's all going to end. Uh, one of the things quoted in Don Martin's piece that I think is very interesting is that he's done virtually nothing in his riding. His, he hasn't had a barbecue since like just like 2015. Yeah, like, which is ridiculous. <laughs> like, hasn't done an event in his riding in 15. The article I think says 14 months, but it's probably a little out of date. Well, that was like earlier this year. Yeah. The uh, his uh, EDA, his Electoral District Association's Facebook page, has been active since December 2015, the month after the election. Like it's basically gone dormant. Yeah, um, which is doesn't crazy doesn't bode well for someone who wants to be reelected. Usually, no. you try and keep your roots in the community. You yeah. try and be active. You try and meet with people. And like Toronto Center is not a writing that's hard for liberals to win, but at the same time, like you do have to kind of put in the minimum, and it doesn't even seem like Bill Morneau is doing that. 
which all draws to uh, Don Martin's conclusion, uh, which is for someone who uh, doesn't have to work another day in his life, will he willingly subject himself to many more months and or years of sitting across the benches from Pierre Polyev and being sort of I mean, when you berated? It, when you put it like that, it actually does sound incredibly miserable. And not only by Pierre Polyev, but also of referring back to the uh, community roundtable in Oakville. Oakville it would be a pretty warm place for Morneau under other circumstances. Yeah. Um, but of having these people just berate him for his I mean, to be changes. honest, for me, I really like the spectacle of immensely rich people being berated. Uh, I think that's great, and we should have more of it. I think we should actually make that mandatory for rich people, so that they get yelled at by people from time to time. Um, and in fact, yeah, anyway, well, let's, let's not keep going, but um, I, I think that would be healthy. Uh, but yeah, that sort of sums up that. Like, and, and Jolie and Morneau both... I mean, Jolie has had much more, like, actually trying to keep her seat, um, but if anybody were going to get dropped from cabinet right now, it seems like it would be those two, which would be two fairly high-profile ministers. So that's so. your your bet? I don't really think it, it'll happen. I'm just saying if it's going to be one, I think there are fairly good odds it'll be both. Because you may as well just rip the band-aid off. I, I disagree. I think Jelly's on for the long term. I kind of, like, I tend to agree. I'm just saying that if she's going to lose her job, she's going to lose it now and not three months from now, right? Like, well, it's not going to be now. Yeah. I, I think it'll be... Um, Presuming the liberals are going to prorogue at some point here, um, which maybe around Christmas is the new date everyone's talking about for prorogation, Um, then that would be the time to do your mini shuffle again. Yeah. Everyone Um, knows that fall is the traditional season for cabinet shuffles. If you... So this, just quickly, this raises the question of who would next be finance minister. The only person who comes to mind for me is François-Philippe Champagne. Who has done, uh, I think, what's perceived to be a very, very, very good job in his profile so, or in his uh, portfolio so far. Uh, former parliamentary secretary of finance, yeah. now minister of international trade. And yeah. his uh, background is, v- like, he worked, I can't remember the company's name. kind of guy. Yeah, he yeah. worked for, uh, he was, like, vice president of some, like, massive, yeah. massive multinational. Yeah. Um, and manage billions of dollars. So yeah. in terms of finance people, there's only TV. really one uh, one solid person uh, outside of Bill Morneau. Yeah, so that would be I, very good odds, I think. I think he would be next in line if I'm, if I'm going to make a prediction. Or, yeah, no, I think that's actually probably a pretty good prediction. I wouldn't disagree with that. Woo! Um, do we want to talk about uh, the NTP leadership briefly? Jagmeet? Yeah, Jagmeet. Jagmeet. Uh, I'll give you my hot take, my two-minute hot take on uh, Jagmeet. Um, so I had some friends who were very... Uh, uh, enthusiastic about Jagmeet? Who were very enthusiastic and did a lot of like the like draft Jagmeet. And, like, I'm sure worked, he needed a lot of encouraging. <laughs> worked, tried to work very hard in order to get him to run and that sort of thing. And I was fairly unfamiliar with Jagmeet before uh, some of my friends started trying to pitch him to me as sort of the next savior of the NDP. And when they sort of laid out their case, I tended to agree, and I tended to think that uh, he seemed like a good fit. I've, I think I've previously defended the fight fire with fire um, thesis. With even hotter fire. Sorry, no, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> with even hotter fire. With something hotter than fire. Um, however... The more I watched him in the debates, the less I liked him. Um, I found that he was less articulate than I would have hoped for. He was 
a little... Uh, he attacked his fellow candidates a little more than I thought and seemed a little more, like, personally... Not personally invested. That's probably not the right thing to say. But he seemed to make it a lot more personal and be a lot more aggressive than the other candidates in his critiques and the, the back and forth and things like that. Um, so there's that. And then having followed him on Instagram... Um, there's the broish nature of a lot of it. You follow his Instagram stories, and it's like, shout out to my peeps in Victoria. We're coming at you tonight. Like, yeah. just very like frat boy esque, um, which I'm not sure how well that'll translate to federal politics. Um, so obviously, this is all to be seen, and he has a while yet to grow and expand his repertoire. Um, but. I liked him more on paper than I did in practice when having uh, the luxury of now having sat through the NDP leadership race and sort of seen what he has to offer in person Because as someone who's never watched, you know, Queen's Park sure. uh, very closely. Just who would? Who would? Yeah, it's like minor leagues. <laughs> um, so... I, I, as many of you probably no doubt gleaned, I was working on Charlie Angus's campaign um, over the last six months as his policy manager, which was a huge honor uh, and something that I've had an immense amount of fun with. And uh, it was, you know, like I said, a tremendous privilege and an honor to do it. Uh, we didn't win, which is fine. That will happen. Um, I had my reservations about Jack Mead. I think it's probably fair to say that my reservations haven't all been addressed in the last two weeks. I think Etienne actually, like, I would share a lot of what Etienne said. Uh, I'm going to have to be optimistic. Um, and at least, you know, hopeful, I think, is a, is a better better word, perhaps. Um, I really... The one thing that I think I'm going to have a really hard time getting over is the bro culture. I think bro culture is not only just incredibly annoying, it's really toxic. I think it, it really lends itself to the kind of good old boy sort of it's a it's a reiteration of the good old boy kind of politics that we've had in the past it's the same sort of masculinist kind of macho politics that have is really toxic for people who are not bros and that you know it includes obviously a lot of women but also i think just even dudes who are just not very broy. um i i think it's a very toxic kind of political culture and i don't particularly like it and i hope that he won't be bringing that to the party on a large scale uh, say what you will about Thomas Mulcair, he was not a bro. I don't know. I've seen a lot of people running around Parliament Hill all of a sudden wearing uh, <laughs> Bermudas, hats, yeah. <laughs> Bermudas and Lacoste polos. Yeah, but it, I, I and this is you know just like I I'm gonna have to make the best of it. Um, and you know I'm hopeful that he will develop as a person and as a leader to to really grow into the role. Uh, but yeah, I, I really do. That if there's a big worry I have, it's on the bro culture stuff. I think that's really toxic. I think it's not good for anyone. Um, and I hope he kind of grows out of that. Fair enough. That's my take, yeah. All right, I guess uh, we will leave that there. We will leave that there indeed. Uh, thank you for listening, everyone. Also, uh, I, we should talk about our beer of the week, which I think oh, we should, may as well make that a feature because we do drink pretty much a different beer every time we do this. Sure. Uh, so this year we had a uh, Imperial Stout aged in whiskey barrels from uh, Boulevard Brewing, which is located in Kansas City. Etienne must have picked this up in Alberta. Land of the free, home of the brave. Uh, and it was, uh, what, what would you say your review of it is? I'm not a big fan of beer, particularly stouts, aged in whiskey and or bourbon barrels, I find that they generally overpower the flavor of the stout. Yeah. I, I have to concur. I, as much as I actually really like whiskey, 
uh, and I enjoy the, the sort of oaky bourbon taste. Uh, and you know, a lot of scotches also like do their actually really fun fact about barrels. Sorry, I know. Uh, I knew. I, knew <laughs> I I've told this you this one a billion up. times, but for bourbon those barrels. Days, but uh, bourbon barrels get used once as per U.S. law. This law was brought in, I think, during the Depression because FDR was like, oh, shit, we need to keep the barrel industry alive. So barrels get used once and then get bought uh, in large part by Scotch distilleries in Scotland that then use them to age their own whiskeys, and they can use them another two, three times because there is no such law about using barrels once there. Uh, but, yeah, at any rate, so this Imperial Stout, I agree with Tian, a uh, little over-oaked frankly the stout itself was good like it's a good kind of chocolatey stout finish but the nose and sort of initial taste were a little too oaky yeah fair enough yeah all told not bad though and 11 percent, which doesn't hurt yeah nice and strong all right well that'll do it for us this week uh make sure to follow us on twitter at short pants pod review us on itunes all that good stuff check uh, out looney politics check out looney politics and uh we will talk to you hopefully next week goodbye everyone bye